Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. This is part two of our delve into The New Statesman. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you better go back and check that out. We've already looked at the career of Rick Mayle and Michael Troughton, two of the main stars of the show. We are halfway through a discussion on the episode we're looking at. That's series two, episode one, Fatal Extraction. And you've missed all that, so go back and check it out. For those of you who are joining us for part two, we're going to jump straight in with our look at the careers of Lawrence Marks and Maurice Gran. So the writers are Marks and Gran, as they are known, Lawrence Marks and Maurice Gran. They were both uh, actually born and raised in the same area of North London. They actually lived quite close to each other. They knew each other as children. They met uh, because they were members of the Jewish Lads Brigade. Mm -hmm. So they kind of met there. I don't know if they were really, really close friends or anything because they actually started writing together a little bit later when they were young adult like in their early 20s and Mm. they they went to the same writers group and then kind of decided to team up and write together doing that alongside their their day jobs so Lawrence Marks was working for a a local paper he was like a journalist local journalist Maurice Gran was actually the manager of a job center interesting they had a chance encounter one of them had a chance encounter with Barry Took who was a, a writer yeah. for radio, and uh, just met him on a train, literally, and got into conversation with him and said, hey, uh, I do a bit of writing. Do you want to have a look at it? <laughs> and so Barry Took kind of mentored them slightly and gave them feedback and like gave them a foot in the door. And that led to them actually writing for Frankie Howard series on the okay. radio. They eventually got something commissioned, and that was in 1980, and it was called Holding the Fort. Any ideas? Uh, okay. Remember that one? Yes. I have come across this. It was Peter Davidson, wasn't it? Peter Davidson, yeah. And it was kind of, he became uh, Doctor Who kind of in the middle of that. He was that, a house so husband was, uh, in that. Yeah. That was the, it was like a gender swap, not gender swap, gender role swap. Yeah, you tell me. Yes. No, that's that's right. Yeah. So uh, Patricia Hodge is his wife and she's in the military and she's had yeah, a baby right. and she decides to go back to work uh, rather than him because she'll earn more money i think is the basic conceit so he has to stay at home and look after the baby because they can't afford full-time childcare. and a, and a young matthew kelly is like the other regular character who's kind of his mate who's a bit more of a layabout and uh, uh-huh. uh bad influence on him so that run for a couple of years was very popular but marks and grand i mean i was looking through their th- their cv and it's like oh yeah i know that one i know that one know that one and mm-hmm. there's loads of others that i didn't know they, they've been really productive over the years so okay. their immediate follow-up to that was in 1981 called roots it was about a jewish dentist interesting <laughs> so that just one series that didn't do much but then they had another big success immediately after holding the fort which was shine on harvey moon yes uh, which i'm sure you know that one is that a sitcom alan is that it's, you, it's is a that, it's a, a it's a comedy a drama. drama or certainly mm. a light drama and there yeah. is definitely a lot of drama in their cv as well they they are comedy specialists but they're not afraid to to go into the drama realm definitely right. uh, and that is sort of the first example of it uh, interestingly though that show featured as regular characters linda robson and pauline quirk who oh, we, will, okay. we will come to soon and back in five minutes <laughs> and nigel planer Nigel Who, Planer. in 1985, was in Rollover Beethoven, which was written by Marx and Grant. Yes. Now, I know all about Rollover Beethoven because I got a little bit obsessed with it earlier this year. Actually, we've put together a Forgotten Sitcoms episode on Rollover Beethoven, yeah. which will be going out 
in the in the hiatus between our series. Yes. So if you, if you want to know more about Rollover Beethoven, just be patient. Wait a, wait mm-hmm. a few weeks and you'll be able to learn more. That's right, yeah. Let me just throw out some other names of it. See which ones of these you recognize. Some lesser known ones. Young, Gifted and Broke. I don't know that. Uh, something called So You Think You've Got Troubles. <laughs> now, the way you said that, it's made, you made it sound like So Haunt Me. Oi. <laughs> Because you've already talked about a Jewish dentist. Well, so you think you've got troubles with Warren Mitchell, who plays a Jewish businessman who goes to Northern Ireland to try and uh, do some business. Oh, my God. (laughs) So so firstly, I think you subconsciously gave that away because you're a massive racist. (laughs) Secondly... Secondly, what year was that that we we mocking the troubles? 1991. Oh, my God. That's before the Good Friday Agreement. (laughs) yeah it sounds fascinating doesn't it (laughs) i want to see that that's a high stakes like i'm not saying that you shouldn't make a comedy about the troubles like it it, you know you can make comedy about anything but it's a high stakes maneuver that isn't it for for two jews from north london (laughs) yeah yeah not particularly ingrained in that world yeah stick with dairy girls i think if you want to know more about that era so this is all going on while the new statesman is a is a hit and then mm-hmm. at the same time as well 1989 we get the first episode of birds of a feather birds of a feather yes so that's probably i would say marks and grand's biggest success probably yeah in terms of mainstream success yeah but they've yeah, had a few I mean, big yeah. successes i mean you can't mm. deny their place in, in sitcom history here no no and in fact this is interesting part of this actually because uh, in the sort of early 90s late 80s early 90s thatcher decreed that tv stations had too much of a not a uh, too much of a monopoly on mm. uh, the TV shows being produced, and they had to take a certain quota of independent production companies. Uh, okay. So rather than just making everything in-house. And so Marks and Gran took this as an opportunity, teamed up with a businessman, and created Alamo Productions. And the fourth series of New Statesman was produced by Alamo Productions. The first three series are produced by Yorkshire okay. Television. Fourth series are produced by Alamo Productions for Yorkshire Television. And going ahead, basically, they produced all their own stuff, which, apart from gives you a bit more control, um, it also gives you a lot more money. (laughs) And so they've been really canny businessmen in that sense in in terms of working on that. And with that control, like, for example, with Birds of a Feather, and like I say, they're really productive. They're producing stuff all the time. And so Birds of a Feather particularly, they would just go, hey, we know some writers. Let's get some writing people in. Okay, you guys... Go and write this episode. Here's an idea. Go and write that episode. And so there's quite a lot of credited writers on Birds of a Feather. They were just overseeing it a lot of the time. They wrote a lot of it as well. Right. Okay. Let me throw out a couple more things at you. See if you recognize any of these. Get Back, 92 to 93 with Ray Winston, who is basically a businessman who loses all his money and has to kind of reset his life. Most notable now because his daughter is played by a young Kate Winslet uh, in in 92. Before she was famous, of course. Love Hurts. That's another one. Yes, yes, yes. I do remember that. Zoe Wanamaker? That's right, yep, yep. Yes. And uh, Adam Faith. And Adam Faith, yes, that's right, yeah. Adam Faith was originally going to play Harvey Moon and then dropped out, which he obviously regretted later on. And so uh, they kind of of came together to do that. Uh, Another one called Unfinished Business. So it's kind of all these things that just one or two series uh, that didn't do that much. But then, of course, smack bang in the 90s there, we've also got Goodnight Sweetheart. You know, if you said Marks and Grant to me, I would say Birds of a Feather and Goodnight Sweetheart. Yeah. I, I, you know, they they would come ahead of New Statesman. New Statesman is Rick Mail, mm. <laughs> whereas Birds of a Feather and Goodnight Sweetheart are 
Instagram. Yeah. But all those shows and, say, Shine on Harvey Moon, like, there's not an obvious through line there. They're very different styles, different different leads, different characters. Yeah, you're right. What I really get from Marks and Gran, uh, they, 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 they don't write personally. They're not writing mm. from a personal point they're of view. They're not Johnny Spate. Yeah, yeah. They, they're, they're writing as a business. It's a profession. And they're very good at it, obviously. Yeah. I think that's why they set up their own production company. They're, they're quite comfortable kind of handing it off to other writers. It doesn't feel like they're losing control because they're, they're not that bothered, you know? And I guess they're, uh, it's not personal. And I, I found that very interesting because I think most of the people, particularly in the British system, what we look at, most of the people, it, it feels, even if you're just churning stuff out as a job, it feels kind of personal. It feels like you're writing from what you know. We so often have just one or two writers writing alone in a little room, you know, it's all mm. quite enclosed uh, yeah. as opposed to the American system. And I think Marx and Gran are a real kind of separation from that. So after the 90s, I feel like they've kind of, they've done their time, you know, and it's been a, hey, it's been a good time, you know, like they've had a great uh, run of it. How old would they, uh, when were they born? Late 40s. Late 40s, okay, so they'd be 50 at the turn yeah. of the century. So in, in 2002, they did Believe Nothing uh, with Rick Mayle again, like... Um, oh, you mentioned that. And, and this was kind of a spiritual success to the New Statesman. It's, 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 it's an obvious comparison. Uh, he plays a, a character called Adonis Canute, who is just, he's a genius, you know, he's a he's a three-timed professor and um, he's extremely arrogant and it's a God, deliberate... They must, have, they must have had sleepless nights casting that. <laughs> well, it's a deliberate attempt to recapture that magic of the new statesman mm. and it wasn't a success, it didn't do very well. I've never well. heard of it. I've only heard of it in the context of the new statesman, really. Like, it was like, mm. it was sold as a kind of follow-up to that. And having watched a little bit of it more recently as well, I mean, it's not funny. It's not good. And, you know, we see this all the time where someone will have a big success, maybe a couple of follow-ups, and then it just sort of fades away. And it's not like they've retired or anything. It's just like they can't get that success again. Is it just a shelf life? Is it that you can't, as a 55-year-old, successful, comfortable life kind of guy, you, it's difficult to really get get your, your hands into some proper satire or, saying, or but, some, something But like. I think that if you... Perhaps they couldn't write the same sort of raw material they could do when they were in the twenties. But if you set up a production company and set up a, a you know a group of writers, then you your your role changes, and you know surely you should still be able to produce comedy and to facilitate it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, but I don't know. We've seen it so many times though, where even the likes of Galton and Simpson, you know had a mm. couple of successes and then it just kind of the latest stuff doesn't hit the mark in the same way and maybe there there is a for a lot of people anyway maybe there is a point where you're just you're just right for that time like like you say you couldn't yeah. the new statesman was right for that time and yeah I, I don't think you could have made that during the blair years it would have been very different you know it wouldn't, yes. it wouldn't really have worked yes so let me round off marks and ground actually believe nothing was the last thing that alamo productions made it was the swan song and and it kind of got right. it just got swallowed up into a bigger company it kind of got bought out and everything and they kind of moved away from that but more recently they've moved into theater they started writing radio plays and then theater and from what they've said it's basically like you can't do anything on tv anymore you don't we haven't got the freedom that we once had mm. but on stage you can do a bit more on radio you can get away with a lot more kind of thing right which i think also comes with that with that sense of kind of being out of date it's also things change the goalposts move and yeah. we all get to an yeah. age where it's more and more difficult to move with them i can i mean i can relate i'm not a writer but i can relate to that <laughs> yeah yeah so more recently they've 
they've actually written musicals. They've they've written the you know the stories okay. for jukebox musicals. Oh, that's interesting. One called Dreamboats and Petticoats. One called Save the Last Dance for Me. That have been fairly successful in that world of jukebox musicals, where they'll just people will just mm. watch anything, you know. And you know, yeah, you know, sort of money's there in that, you know. And and like I say, they sure. they're kind of producers of their own stuff. So I think they've made a, a decent bit of cash in that in their time. I don't think they're worried about that. But what the most interesting thing I've kind of come across while I was doing all this research was on the New Statesman, if you get it on the DVD box set, there are a few episodes where they do commentary on it. Now, okay. in that they mention the, the theatre show, which we'll talk about later, uh, where they brought the New Statesman back. And that was like 2006-07. So it was about okay. then when they did this commentary. Probably because right. they were releasing the DVD to tie in with a station. Yeah, yeah. And what I found really fascinating about that is it's the two of them, they're watching the show and commentating on it, obviously. You know what a director's commentary type thing is. Yeah. If you just played that to me and without context, I would say these two people have no connection whatsoever. They have no chemistry. They're not funny. <laughs> Most of the time, it feels like they've been recorded separately and they've just laid the tracks on top of each other. They they are not connected. Well, they're not interacting. Well, they are, but like it feels so forced and natural. And like one of them will try and kind of just say something, trying to set up a joke or kind of just setting something up silly, and the other one will go like, "No, no, that's not right." Rennie Short, um, is she still alive? No, she was good, wasn't she? She was the parliamentary was, advisor. She was. She used to tell the extras to make more noise. Cause, it, cause we had a House of Commons set built specially for the programme. Or should I say, we had it transported over from they, Granada. Now the first year they borrowed Granada's set, and then, and then they built their own set in the second year. Um, which I'm not sure... Yes, that's right. And we put we stored it in a warehouse. That's boring, Lawrence. Also, if if that date is right, about two thousand six seven, they would have been in late fifties. They sound like they're eighty, and they're just kind of <laughs> in an old people's home talking at each other. Because you watch a lot of these old interviews, and you watch a, you, you know you do a lot of research on these old, particularly writing duos, partnerships. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about did they ate each other in real life or did they get on until they, they died? You know, yeah. what, you're saying there just doesn't seem to be any chemistry between these two. Yeah, it doesn't like, it's not that they don't get along. It's, it's almost like they don't hear each other when they're talking <laughs> to the point where it could have been like some elaborate character thing they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I tell you what, they've been very successful in the industry. They seem like I haven't heard anyone say a bad word about them or anything. Like people like to work with them again. And they've obviously had huge successes so they're obviously doing something right but like just based on that kind of little experience alone i just really don't, i don't know what they're getting from each other <laughs> yeah yeah we need to go back to our episode of don't course, we yeah. uh, so where were we we had just seen the only way you could win hackney is if you could take the vote away from the working class so yeah we go back to the house of commons which i'm still not over the fact is in manchester not least <laughs> uh, so we're back to the house of commons and uh you know we, we get this mock debate so we, we see a labor mp who's having a go at the poll tax and uh, well, uh, let's let's have a little tangent here and talk about the poll tax. This was made in 1989. Yes. So the poll tax hadn't actually been implemented yet, but the, the poll tax was incredibly unpopular. Mm. Arguably, it's brought, down, brought Thatcher, Thatcher down. Yeah. There were riots against it. And what 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 you may not know is that they they'd launched this poll tax and said, we're going to roll it out. I think it was 1990 they were going to launch it. And they launched it a year early in Scotland as a sort of trial to see how badly wrong it would go. <laughs> which, which I, 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 yeah, I don't think Thatcher was very popular in Scotland before that, but 
you could argue the Tories have never recovered in Scotland mm. since then. It was very poorly received in Scotland. Yeah. So, so this is really this is really topical, and and so it's they're using it here, uh, where basically Alan proposes, okay, you don't want the tax, fair enough, but no taxation without representation. Okay, no representation without taxation. Don't pay the tax, but you don't get a vote. What he was saying was, anyone earning under twenty thousand pounds doesn't have to pay, but then they can't vote. Mm. Now, here's the thing: I genuinely remember that being talked about. Yeah. Like not as a not as a not as an MP suggesting it as an amendment, but I can remember that being a you know refuse to pay, but you just won't get to vote, and people thinking that would be okay. <laughs> like it, it wasn't, you know, it was still against the law. Yeah, how many people do you think would take that up if you just gave them the choice? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A yeah. lot. Millions. Yeah, millions would. So you know, obviously, Alan's position is as right wing as you can be. Yeah, if you don't want to pay, fine, but you don't get to vote. And, and in this scene in the House of Commons, we see Bob Crippen, who in the first mm. series and then I think in just this episode in the second series is a sort of semi regular character who is he's he's yeah. kind of a nemesis to to Alan, but he's just the face of Labour backbenchers. Really, he's the kind of the equivalent. But so, so I really recognised this guy's face, but I, I didn't know who he was. Who's the actor? Well, Nick Stringer. He's one of those people who's seen things but he's quite well known for two small but memorable appearances in only fools and horses uh, okay. in which we've seen one of them he sells a car he puts on an australian accent and sells a car to del boy in one of the episodes okay. we watched recently and then he plays jumbo mills in a, in a later episode so a couple of quite memorable roles even though it's not huge roles uh but yeah one of those faces you just sort of see seeing sitcom stuff yeah uh, and i really like him actually i think this character we lose this character later on but i like him i think he's just got a lovely manner about him he's he puts a face onto the Labour Party. He just gives someone for Alan to kind of go against directly. Mm -hmm. And in fact, talking about the differences there as we go along, Series 1 has quite a few recurring characters that are dropped mm. for Series 2. And I think that just came from when they're originally writing a script or an idea, you pack a load of ideas in there. And then it's not necessarily that they don't work, but it's like, okay, well, we don't need as many because, and one of the things the writers um, really said in, in an interview I saw was um, that they would write the script and then it would end up too long because Rick Mail would do his business. So where in the script it says, Alan hits Piers, that turned into a two minute bit. And so they had to start reducing what they were writing to, to allow for all that. And so I think yeah, I it's think. just a matter of that. They just had to kind of reduce what they were doing. But just to talk about what we, what we see in that first series, a very notable element of that is Rowena Cooper playing Norman Borman, who is a sort mm. of shadowy mm. ally of, of Alan's business manager. Yeah, he's kind of just doing his dealings with him. And it starts out as a man played Norman and throughout the series is undergoing a, a sex change to become Norma. And so yeah. it's it's played by a female actor, Rowena Cooper. It's it's a funny little subplot that is going through the series. It's an odd one. It's odd to have a, a, a running plot through a series in a sitcom anyway, but also one that's not yeah. related to the main character and is not really relevant to what's happening. <laughs> no, it's odd. I saw one, one of the episodes where the character was there and, you know, it was very obviously a, a, a female actor mm. playing this character. And I, and I kind of thought, oh, well, that's going to pay off. And in the episode I watched, it didn't at all. <laughs> What's going on here? It doesn't really pay off at all. No, it doesn't. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, later on, you know, he becomes a woman and then 
things happen where he has to be a woman. He has to seduce a man, for example, uh, who is a, a womanizer. You know, things yeah. like that. But it's also not really played for laughs in that, oh, look, it's a man kind of being a woman. It's always a bloke in a dress. It's because it's a woman. It's a female actor. Yeah. yeah. And so it starts off as a woman with a moustache and and not very convincingly either so i think it's just one of those things that seemed like an interesting idea it's like, oh this is something we can play with on paper and then when you do it it doesn't really mm. play out or doesn't really go anywhere mm. there's not that many terrible jokes about transgenderism <laughs> it's for its time it could have been a no, lot worse not, i yeah, guess it could, it could be worse sure <laughs> but it's, it's sure. certainly not a... but rowena cooper of course she was in a few episodes of the rag trade revival the color revival she played mrs fenner in a few episodes okay yeah and she's also in a couple of episodes of going straight uh, where i believe she's fletcher's parole officer uh, probation officer she's one of those people you see in a lot of things as well uh, and, and then just some of the characters who are in that first series we have charles gray charles gray from the bond films yeah, yeah. blofeld that's right, yeah. He plays Alan's father-in-law who controls the Conservative oh, Party. Oh, okay, right, I see. It's a really nice performance, actually, of just like this kind of posh, bigoted old man <laughs> who does what he wants and kind of goes toe-to-toe with Alan with, um, in terms of the kind of corruption in, in evil. Yeah. It's a, he's only in a couple of episodes, but it makes a big impact. It's lovely stuff. Oh, that's good. Also in that first series, we have Peter Salis, sitcom royalty, Peter Salis. Yes, I saw him. He was the landlord of the pub. Yes, and formerly the the hangman mm. for britain so obsessed with hanging people and wants to bring mm. hanging back which they do eventually kind of pay off in the special when alan yes. is um you know accused of brings back hanging and, and, yeah. yeah although actually by the time they did the special it's not peter salis they have the same character but they bring another actor in to play him uh, so yeah it's the, all these extra characters that they just kind of have in a couple of episodes here and there and they just kind of they kind of sweep all that out and then probably the most notable one is John Nettleton as Sir Stephen Baxter. Mm, yeah. So he's like the the older MP who's a bit of a bit of a old buffer but mm. sort of like a elder statesman. Yeah, the guy's been on the backbenches for 35 years already. Yeah, that's mm. And played by John Nettleton who's most famous for for Yes Minister. He was he was mm. in that. He was Yes, one of the civil servants. He was one of the civil servants in that. Yeah, that's what he's most recognizable as. Looks totally different in this, actually. I didn't recognise him. It was only because I looked it up. <laughs> what he, what he's, he right. And then it, halfway through the second series, it, he says something like, oh, I've, I think it's time for me to accept that peerage. And then we never see him, see him again. So <laughs> we assume he's been sent up to, uh, to the Lords. To the other place. Yeah. So there's a lot of, I don't want to use the phrase dead wood, but there's a lot of elements of that first series that they just kind of go, okay, let's let that go. And basically mm-hmm. what, it replace, what we replace it with is... Rick Mail. And I was sort of surprised when I've read, after watching it, when I read that this was written for Rick Mail because that first series feels like it's been written and Rick Mail's kind of come in and obviously kind of okay. fudged it around. And then they've it. mailed it up afterwards. And then they've mailed it up for the second series. But that's not the yeah. case. Well, obviously that is the case. But I, I guess the writers didn't quite anticipate how much they would mm. want to accommodate him. And I I also think that this, the second series opens up a little. It's not quite as small. It's it, And that's mm. probably... There might have been an element of budget about that. Like they might have just got... Because it was a bit of a success, they got a bit more money. But maybe just kind of like okay we've figured out what we're doing we've learned kind of this this works this doesn't work and so we're spreading our wings a little bit i would have liked to keep some of those other characters i this is one of those shows where i feel like it might have benefited from the extra four minutes you get at the bbc i think there's so, there's so much here that could have just been expanded a little bit yeah 
let's go back to our episode, which is a very much second series. So now we get, we cut to Alan, who is in his house with, how do I put this? Th- three three ladies of Southeast Asian heritage yes. who are all wearing lingerie. Yes, that is correct. Yes. Actually, I, t- I tell you what, before, before we get to that, uh, he is watching the television and we see on the television, th- this is something that New Statesman does quite a bit. It'll show you the news report of what's just happened. Mm. And, and, you know, we see that in films, don't we? It gives it a bit of uh, verisimilitude yeah. so that you can see, look, this is an, an actual real newsreader reading the news. And that guy, Alan Hardwick is his name. I, 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 that, that was like Proust Madeleines to me. I remembered him perfectly. And I must not have seen this guy since this, probably. But he was, a, he was like a Yorkshire TV news presenter in the 80s and 90s and you know it was just like my childhood rushing back when i saw him there's quite a few elements of that where you have real people playing themselves like dickie davis is in it uh, for example mm-hmm. in one episode and i think that's just obviously it was filmed in leeds so those local elements jump out to you because that's where you were sure you yeah were, no absolutely you know. I, I i realize that's not the most relatable content <laughs> yeah. but uh, but I, I liked it but obviously it just works that it's a tv news you know reporter you get that uh, yeah. So yes, he is watching the the news, flanked by some Southeast Asian lovelies, um, as, as we would call and and then speaks to them by just sort of making these strange guttural noises. Girls. No, 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 no. That means come over here and get saucy. Good. Time for another multiple orgasm. <laughs> I think he's supposed to be speaking Thai. Yeah. But, but they don't understand him. <laughs> I mean, it's it's definitely racist. I just can't figure out how racist it is. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, it's totally racist. <laughs> I mean, how racist? Very racist. Oh, good. Oh, good. Just so we make that clear. <laughs> but then the chief whip turns up. Uh, the chief whip, incidentally, who... Alan calls Mr. Whippy, which I thought that really made me laugh. <laughs> I like that. I think there's a shame that hasn't stuck in real life. <laughs> it would have been a good name for Gavin Williamson when he was the chief whip. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so the chief whip's alarmed by Alan's suggestion of, you know, cutting the vote. It's a constitutional crisis. The Queen might be overthrown. That all seems a bit much to me. <laughs> yeah, we, we get a bit of a dig at the royal family in this exchange as well. Mm, they throw them yeah. in the mix. Prince Edward gets the stick there, doesn't he? Because he'd, mm. he'd recently unsuccessfully tried to join the Marines and not, not pass the course to get in. And so, you know, he was subjected to all sorts of abuse for that. Mm. Despite the fact it's quite a low success rate, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's not supposed to be easy, is it? <laughs> exactly. Uh, but but then after after that we get the resolution of our kind of principal plot here, uh, in which Georgina turns up again and mm-hmm. she's wearing a massive fur coat. Uh, therefore, yeah, she she's is rich. The nines. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Basically, to sum up that plot, she, she realized what he was up to, and so she did her his plan for herself. She leased the marshes and she made all yeah. the money from it. Completely played him. Yes. And and the reason she found out was because she called the office and basically, not even deliberately, got the information out of Piers. Uh, so once yeah, again, because Piers is an absolute monumental idiot and just told her told her the whole plot. Yeah. Uh, so that character kind of just you know wanders off into the distance. <laughs> she's sold her out her principles, but she's she's rich, mm-hmm. so who cares? And and once again, Alan is the loser. And it, interestingly, with the new statesman, sometimes he'll win. 
and he'll make a load of money and kind of yeah. other people will lose. Sometimes he gets his comeuppance like in this. And on, on a moral level, there doesn't seem to be any guidelines behind that. Uh, although mm. off, like, you know, there's one example where, you know, he's blackmailing a Nazi, for example. Uh, yeah. So when he wins in that situation, it's like, okay, well, that's not that really a problem. Okay. <laughs> but we're, in this case, I guess we've set this character up so we don't want her to lose to Alan. So the next scene we have, Alan has peers out on the window ledge and he's mm-hmm. going to kill him he's going to throw him off the off the window ledge into the river yeah and there's a there's a lovely expression here which sums up the character so it's so appears says well, why are you so angry you don't need the money he says no i don't need the money Piers. but you see i want it because i'm very very greedy Piers. <laughs> that's the character that is the character right there <laughs> yeah that's the beauty of alan bastard sometimes he just says <laughs> what he is he's, he is not hiding who he is <laughs> We indeed we're going to, we we see that at the end of this scene, which and this whole scene really is just a tack on. It's it's mm. not relevant. Well, the the bit with Piers is and 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 he throws him out of the window, basically attached to. A... Well, the chief whip the chief whip comes in, yeah, to to try and persuade Alan to drop this amendment, and of course Alan's no incentive to do it now, so he agrees to drop it. Mm. The chief whip comes in, so Alan just casually shoves Piers out the window, <laughs> and that that's done. So now we get this new conversation. But but there's there's a lovely moment there. There's a lovely moment there where he's holding a. A, statue, a bust of Gladstone which is attached yes. to Piers which he's going to drown him with and it gets whipped out of his hands and like smashes through the window um, and it's a yeah. lovely moment it just works but it's one of those physical things mm-hmm. that works exactly how you want it to and it obviously mm-hmm. like it's one of those things that could look crap and it gets such a big laugh that the, the chief whip Bernard Gallagher's playing the chief whip has to kind of stall slightly to let the laugh abate before he can do his yeah. next line it's a great yeah. little moment there yeah. but this this like little tack on scene it's well first of all it's very homophobic we'll get to that yeah but what I like about this from a character point of view is Alan's lost. Mm. His play has not played out and he's lost everything he wanted to achieve. Yeah. But immediately he manages to blackmail the chief whip and get something out of the situation. He is always, always looking to get one over. Yeah. And it's again, it's not about the money. It's about the power. Yeah. And he he manipulates it. He just sees an opportunity. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the chief whip shows us a, a second of weakness and he's like, oh, hello. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. and immediately thinks of a ploy to exploit it, and within you know forty five seconds has his little moment of of victory. And the interestingly, so the episode ends with so so he's basically blackmailing the the chief whip, and the chief whip says, "You unprincipled, unmitigated bastard." Mm. And Alan's reply is, "Yes, minister." <laughs> Now that's interesting yeah. because obvious for obvious reasons. Did did they ever do that in any of the other episodes? Finish it with yes, minister. No, and do you know what I'm thinking about this? This is a really weird. It's it's literally the last line of the episode, as it was in every episode of Yes Minister. If anyone's unsure of why we're saying that's yeah, and, and so often in the New Statesman, people call Alan a bastard. Right? It's quite a common thing mm-hmm. to call him just as a as an insult, and then he will go, <laughs> "It's bastard." It's bastard. So this is a setup to do that line. And I I want I suspect and I've got no basis for that whatsoever, but I suspect that that was what this line was when it was written in the script. Because that would have been a good episode ending line. Yeah. It's bastard. A- yeah. And maybe in rehearsals or whatever, because it's the last line of the episodes, someone's gone, oh, actually, maybe we could do this. Maybe, maybe I, I wondered if it was some sort of tribute, if, you know, if someone had died who, who was involved in this minister. Or, or, or if, if the series had finished, maybe that was why. I don't know. Well, it was like a year after that. So, yeah. Uh, this, this, actually, to be fair, this was probably the first one they wrote after they knew it wasn't coming back, mm. I guess. Yeah. yeah. First one of the yeah. next series, yeah. 
Uh, but yeah, so we, we didn't actually specify that what he's blackmailing the chief whip for is that the chief whip is a, a closet homosexual and he thinks Alan is as well. And so he thinks he's going to bond with him. And actually, Alan... So he drops his guard. Yes. Alan, Alan is not usually this direct, but he says... I hate queers. Basically, is what he says. He says I hate queers almost as much as I hate poor people. Yeah, um, that's the line. And it's it's interesting. Like I said earlier, there's there's certain things that Alan says that these days hit much more sensitively than we, they did yes. back then. That's one. Of, that's yes. a pretty good example, I think. Whereas, like, I think if you were writing that now, Alan is someone who would embrace the the pink vote shall we say mm-hmm. and would very happily yeah, yeah, you're right. he, yeah. he would probably go on about how he's a gay icon and gay people love him and all this yeah. sort of stuff you know yeah you're right and, and you're you right. could have that same right. character just embracing those elements rather than uh, rejecting them well that's that's our episode but i am very conscious that we for some reason have picked an episode that doesn't have alan's wife in it i know how did i manage to do that yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and she's actually in the vast majority of episodes but yes we should talk about sarah played by marsha Fitzalan, who is alan's wife and actually perhaps it's not completely coincidence that she's not in this episode because i think it took them a while to figure out what they were doing with it as i said before all that first series stuff uh, that they had and the wife is part of that uh, they have a very mm-hmm. fractious relationship they both play away from home listen mustache fast running all right darling uh, yearn for you longingly <laughs> darling that's lovely i'm your little rabbit and i'm a rabbit too <laughs> <laughs> Right, I'm off to Springfellas to commit adultery. <laughs> but the marriage is a complete sham. And there's a line there where Alan says to her, I don't know why I married you. And she replies, you married me, my darling, because you're nouveau riche. <laughs> and that, that's, you know, that's true. He, he's, she's got the land, she's got the titles, she's got the credibility. And, and as it turns out, you told me, she's got the parliamentary seat yeah. in her gift, in her dad's gift. So he's got money. He's a rich guy, but he's, well, he's nouveau riche. He's Richard Devere. <laughs> we, he's Richard, we talked about this last week, yeah, with the To the Man of Born, absolutely. That To the Man of Born was made in the early 80s, a few years before this, but it, it was very much about that old money versus nouveau riche. And we, we sort of see eight or nine years later a more extreme version of that, but it's, it's, it's essentially the same relationship. Yeah, and I think they do a really nice job with this character ultimately and in, in series two is when they're sort of struggling the most with it they didn't want to drop her like they dropped a lot of the elements of series one they obviously didn't want to drop her completely mm. but they had to work out what they were doing with her and they took them a while but actually as they go along they expand her role to the point when series four mm. when they go into europe she becomes much more of a significant character and they enter this kind of awkward alliance where you know we establish she is just as psychopathic and corrupt as he is and perfectly willing to act on it and she tries to kill him several times doesn't she yes and there's a sort of mutual respect between them for that Uh, and Mm -hmm. they work together when it suits them but then they've always got like one eye on the other because the knife's coming for the back you know yeah and i think it actually works really nicely by the point they figure all that out but in the early series she's just oh i just want to spend money give me some money i want to spend that's money. right yeah she's just sex and money and that's that's all she's interested in but marcia fitzallen who plays the character or to give her a proper name lady marcia fitzallen howard oh, okay. who is the daughter of the duke of norfolk the duke of norfolk 
That's that's not even that's um, that's no ordinary duke. That's the old marshal of England. That's the oldest duke there is. That's the number one peer. Yeah, and yeah, she is the daughter of the duke. Of, well, she's now the sister of the duke of Norfolk because it's passed on to her brother. Okay, I'm uh, but she, you know, and so she's proper aristocracy. Oh, that's interesting. So how the hell did you get into acting then? <laughs> yeah, well, because she was the third daughter of the Duke of Norfolk, basically. Okay. So right. her expectations were not on her. Uh, so she, you know, she went to drama school, basically. That was obviously just what she wanted to do. You know, she enjoyed it. Yeah, fair enough. You know, and, and so obviously her family's all connected. Her sister was married to David Frost uh, for many years, you know. <laughs> a nice little TV connection. Uh, yeah, well, do you know what? I knew David Frost had married into aristocracy. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And it, interestingly as well, because her brother is now the Duke of Norfolk. This isn't really an acting role, but she has been a stand-in for the Queen for a, as a rehearsal for the state opening of Parliament when they're figuring out what they're going to do. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. her brother's organising it, so he's like, "Oh, come and come and do this." Yeah. Why me. not? <laughs> so she's, um, to be honest, like hasn't didn't have that much comedy on her CV. You know, this was a a big sort of major role for her, made her much more recognisable. Uh, and and then just a handful of things after this, nothing particularly major. In fact, the last credit on her IMDb is in 2011 uh, for an episode of My Family, a sitcom credit, but uh-huh. that was her last role. She, so I she, guess she's pretty much retired at that point. Uh, how old would she be now? How old is she? 1953, she was born. Yeah, because, so. you know, the, these the characters in The New Statesman, they're not young, are they? They're no. sort of middle-aged, not middle-aged, but, you know, in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, well, uh, well, in 1987, when uh, this first series was made, she just had her third child. So, you know, she's right. got a whole family thing going on. And, you yeah. know, it's, especially when they're young, you might... That's the sort of thing you're going to put before your career, especially when you're in a situation where you don't need money. Can I ask who Marsha Fitzalan, did she marry into the aristocracy or keep it in the family? Or did she marry Nouveau Riche? She married uh, an actor, a fellow actor that she met at drama school. How's she going to live? <laughs> <laughs> well she's she's remarried since then to someone else but i don't know who that is okay so yeah that's that's marcia fitzallen quite an interesting sort of personal life yeah, more than a professional I life she, i didn't realize she was uh, aristocratic yeah and obviously she brings that to the role and and actually the role is extremely vulgar <laughs> and um mm. you know sexualized and and quite grotesque as is you know the whole show she said I, I saw an interview with her where she sort of said she she made sure her parents didn't see it put it that way <laughs> So just in terms of the impact of the show, there's definitely been a suggestion that it had a sort of, let's say, Gordon Gecko style appeal in which there were these young Tory ministers who were like, oh, I'm going to get my hair done nice and get a good suit. And yeah, this is quite an image. Yeah. I'm thinking of Alan Duncan. He's he's still a Tory MP now, but he was a sort of junior MP in the major years. Yeah, he was very much in that model. Mm. I think it caught the imagination, you know, like a, a few weeks in to the series starting, it, there was a newspaper headline about, uh, you know, some Tory MP involved in a scandal. And the headline was, what a bastard. Yeah. You know, so it, it kind of, it, it, it gave a name to that concept. It captured that sense. But this was the problem they faced with series three after Thatcher resigned. Well, mm. after Thatcher was booted out, basically. They retooled series three. Did they have to rewrite it? Yes, they had to rewrite it quite considerably and didn't have okay. much time to do it. But the the problem was that without Thatcher, like it's not it's not fun anymore <laughs> it's not to kick to kiss it's, it's no fun to flog a dead horse it's you know it's like you were saying it's like yeah. uh, 
Major didn't provide the laughs that we wanted. So for Series 4, they made a quite admirable attempt, I think, to just reinvent the show slightly and make Alan an MEP mm. and send him up to the European Union, along with Piers and his wife, Sarah, as well, and Sir Greville MacDonald, yeah. who was another sort of recurring character at that point. I think it was a really valid attempt to keep the idea alive. I don't think ultimately that it works. And in Series 4, what we get is a very quick escalation of things. It's like they keep trying to get bigger and bigger to the point where literally the last episode is he becomes Lord Protector of the United Kingdom after (laughs) sort of rising a sort of fascist horde. And there's there's all sorts of nonsense going on. Like there was nowhere else to go with it. And also, I think it had just lost its way slightly. It needed to be a little bit more grounded, a little bit smaller in that House of Commons, you know. And mm. I think it had just it had just done its time. It, it, it had served its time. And so they walked away. But there is a little bit of legacy there. It wasn't the end of Alan Bastard. The, the most obvious thing there is a reinvention of the character again for theatre, in 2006 originally, and then it ran through to 2007, the show was called The Blair Bastard Project. Ah. And the concept was, Alan Bastard, in the 15 years since we've seen him, Alan Bastard was the man behind New Labour. <laughs> he created New Labour and he groomed Tony Blair for leadership. He is the, Interesting. He is the power behind the power behind the throne. <laughs> the shadowy figure behind Peter Mandelson, basically, is what he's supposed okay. to be. Okay. <laughs> and it's great. It's a great concept. The fact that he's moved over to Labour because he doesn't care about politics. It's just where the power yeah. is. And have you, you said it was a theatre sh- stage show. Have you seen this? You know, no, there's no, there's no video of it or anything like that. It was just one of those things that went on for a, for about a year. And, and, and in yeah. fact, they had to change it quite considerably because it was that time that Blair resigned and, and Gordon course, Brown yeah. came in. So they then had to kind of retool it slightly. And apparently they were updating it every week on tour just to keep it fresh and putting topical gags okay. and stuff. Was that Marks and Grant, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Marks and Grant have kept this character alive, you know, quite considerably over the years. But and and you now they had Rick Mail, they had Marsh Fitzalan in in it for a while mm. as well. When but, and then they sort of changed that. But it's it's such a great concept. And the writers, um, one of them, I I can't remember offhand which one is a card carrying Labour member. And was a big believer in New Labour and was like, yes, Blair's going to come and change the world. And then 10 years later, it was ripe to be satirised. And they couldn't have done it in 97. So I think that's a really great idea. And I I think it had a fair amount of success. It transferred to the West End for a while, did a bit of a tour, all that sort of thing. Well, you know, the the people on the left criticise Blair for being the the heir of Thatcher. But actually, in many ways, he's the heir of Bastard, isn't he? (laughs) Which is, that's exactly, like, I think the concept is he found this young kind of hippie (laughs) and moulded him into Tony Blair. You know, it's like he's, Mm -hmm. he created him in his image. You know, I think that's the idea. That's funny. So after that, the very last thing, the, the, the last Bastard appearance was in 2011 where Rick Mail appeared as Bastard in a video made for a campaign that was crusading against the alternative vote. So it was when the alternative vote was coming oh, up the for AV a referendum. referendum. Uh, yeah, and basically he's Bastard saying like, well, I'm in power, you didn't vote for me, but I'm going to win anyway, and uh, I don't have to follow any of my policies because it doesn't matter, because your vote doesn't count. Extremely misleading 
concept of what the alternative vote system is. But apparently yeah. Rick Mail was quite anti-AV, and so he, he did really? that. So it was not connected to Marx and Gran in any way, but that, that was interesting. that. Uh, yeah, which is interesting. Like, you can look that up on YouTube, and it's just like, mm, this isn't what alternative vote is about at all. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, the, the very sort of last thing in terms of this character is that the writers did attempt to throw a, a kind of sequel together called the the bastard legacy i think it was called and it was supposed to be about bastard's mm. son not in as an mp but would be like a social media influencer okay, sort right, of thing yeah, you know yeah. a political influencer and it stalled like they couldn't get the project going they couldn't find an actor that could mm. win it over and so it came to nothing basically but uh, this was after rick mail had died as well so there's also okay. that element of like do you want to kind of take that on and you know sure but yeah, so that's that's the legacy of um, Bastard. I think it's done now. I don't think we're going to say anything more of it. The the writers are they're certainly of retirement age. Put it that way. I think they do still work. Yeah. But, uh... Well, look. I think the last thing I wanted to talk about was where the new statesman sits with political comedy. Right. Yeah. And we've we've mentioned a couple of times, yes, minister, mm -hmm. and we've also talked about satirizing Blairism. And I think the thick of it is the the yes minister of that era. And I, I just think that's an interesting through line from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s. Mm. You know, Yes Minister, it satirised that, that kind of 70s post-war consensus where there wasn't really much to call between Labour and the Conservatives and the civil service ran everything and they want, did what they wanted and they were obstructive. You know, that was the nature of the satire, that it was just this stodgy bureaucracy and nothing ever got done. And I think that's how people felt about politics yeah. before Thatcher came along. And the New Statesman satirises that, well, that nouveau riche, but that, that yuppie Thatcherism of those, it's no longer the Knights of the Shires, it's just these these rich young people who come in and do whatever the hell they like. And mm. Alan Bastard is the steroided up version of that. Whereas, you know, the thick of it later on satirises that media-led Blairism, that the Spin Doctor era. And each one of those shows is so of its time. I, mean, I, I know they remade Yes Minister, but it was very much a nostalgic project. It yeah. wasn't. It wasn't satirizing co contemporary politics in just the same way that the thick of it. I'm sure in the 1970s there were people behind the scenes who were swearing, but that <laughs> wouldn't have worked. That wouldn't have resonated for people. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I really, I really dumbed down thick of it. There's a bit more than just someone swearing. <laughs> so, so I, I, I think New Statesman very much takes its place on that timeline very much of its time very much satirizing the political era in which mm. it sat and and doing a very good job of it mm. and i think political satire is by its nature it has to be of its time obviously mm. as we saw with new statesman struggled after thatcher was gone it's the ingredients have to be right yeah and and the same way the thick of it came along after New Labour was really bedded in and kind yeah. of had had their chance to do things. And this is a bit of an extreme, but had been exposed for what they really were. I mean, that's not a very mm. rounded view of it, but they were ripe for satire, basically. Whereas in 1998, yeah. they weren't. And likewise. So I don't think New Statesman could have been made in 1982. Yeah. Because we look back and we say, well, the Thatcher years, 1979 to 1990. But culturally speaking, that image, that, that Alan Bastard figure didn't exist in the culture Maybe they existed in the House of Commons, but they didn't exist in the culture until the late 80s. Mm. When when are we going to get the next sort of big political satire? Well, we, we're in the post-truth era, aren't we? We're in the Trump-Johnson era now. So Armando Iannucci famously says you couldn't make a thick of it now because the reality is funnier than the, the mm. parody. Yeah. So I, I think it's 
it's going to be back to a maybe not quite Alan Bastard, but a, a, a venal just lie, just say whatever the hell you like, and no one will ever call you on it, and we'll get some Russian bots to tell people what to think. And that, that's mm. the that's the next satire, I think. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens in in the future of political sitcom. Yeah, well, sure thing. So I think I think we're finished with the the new statesman, aren't we? It's been a good one, that. Yeah, no, I I enjoyed. Uh, you know, we always sort of reflect on how things hold hold up. So I remember the new statesman at the time, and I remember enjoying it. But I I, I really enjoyed watching it again this last week. And as I said earlier, I, it's my favourite Rick Mail performance. Having watched, you know, the big ones, the young ones, Filthy Rich and Cat's Lap, and Bottom all quite recently, yeah. and not enjoying them as much as I used to. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, uh, thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we are on social media. We are at BritcomPod on Instagram and Twitter. Get in touch with your thoughts on the new statesman. Get in touch with your pictures for the next political satire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> we'll throw no, something together. We'll send it to the BBC. Yeah. <laughs> also, you can watch our YouTube channel, which is British Sitcom History. We have video versions of the podcast with video clips dropped in uh, for extra context also we have further videos on there our forgotten sitcom series for example so gareth recently did filthy rich and cat flap there if you want to see a bit more rick mail and uh other than that we will be back next week with something a little bit more modern we're we're gonna go with extras with ricky gervais have, have a watch of extras before next week uh, get get your uh, get your homework done that's what i've got mm. to do <laughs> so yeah <laughs> uh, so thank Thank you very much for listening and we will be back next time. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.